Uh, in Colossians chapter 3, verse 1, it tells us, as Christ followers, to set our minds on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, to live our lives not tethered down here on earth at the ground floor level to, and what's going on here, but instead to, to what's happening in heaven. And, and I have heard a criticism against that point of view, that perspective. Maybe you're familiar with it. I've heard people say that, uh, you know, Christians are so heavenly minded that they're of no earthly good. Um, and, and, and I imagine that is possible to go swing too far on that side. Um, but I'm not sure that I've ever seen it. And, uh, and, and what I have seen, and, and particularly in the past season that we've been working through over the last year or so, is this great challenge of, of, of having our sights set at the ground floor level, having our hearts tethered to cable news commentators and, and wrapped up with political pundits and, and social ideologies. And maybe I'm missing something, but I, I've yet to hear those voices bring in that heavenly perspective, that eternal perspective that God's called his people to set their hearts upon. And, 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 and what I've come to understand is that the only way that we're of any earthly good is if our hearts, our lives, are set on heavenly realities. And, and the book of Revelation helps us do that. Um, it's a very intimidating book. We've been making our way th through it over the past couple of months. Um, it's an intimidating book. It's a challenging book. It's a, it's a confusing book. But if we take the time to unpack it, and make sense of what's in there, what it's saying, and how it applies to our lives. It helps us anchor our lives to eternal realities. And it gives us a vantage point, the right vantage point to live our lives out from. And so this morning, we are going to pick up where we left off last week. If you were with us, we looked at Revelation chapter 4. Last week, we walked through this spectacular scene in the throne room of heaven, where, where eternal, almighty God is seated and sovereign, and the object of unending, unceasing adoration, praise, and worship. And that scene sets up for what happens next. Today is part two of that, that, um, that there is this, this scroll and, and the sobbing that goes on. And so I'm going to just invite you to just jump in with me. And we're going to start in chapter 5. And I'm going to read the first five verses here. It says this. And then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals." So in this scene, we see that there is a problem in heaven, and it is a problem that no one on earth is able to resolve. 
And this problem drives John to tears. What he sees drives him to tears. This, This loud, undignified sobbing would be an accurate description of of how he's responding to what he sees. And the problem that he is crying over is really, it is the ultimate problem of our existence, of human existence. It has to do with the scroll that he sees, and it's, it's, it's gripped in the hand of Almighty God. The scroll has a lot in it. It makes the point of saying it's written on both sides, the front and the back, which is unusual back then. And and it also says that this scroll has been locked up tight with seven seals. That, That means that only the right person, the one who has the right credentials, is authorized or able to open that up. So worthy is the word that uh, this passage uses to explain that. There has to be the right person, the worthy individual to open it up. And, And here's the thing. That scroll represents, inside of that scroll is all of the information, the critical information, um, the most critical information in the entire universe. Because within that scroll lies Almighty God's playbook for the final chapter of human history. All right, so it contains God's instructions, his edicts for setting everything right that is wrong on this planet, for stopping the lies, for ending the corruption, for dealing with the injustices and all the sin and the suffering and abuse on a worldwide level. That's the ending that we're all longing for, isn't it? And, and like John, we live in this broken world, this broken down world, and we sob over what we see. We, 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 we try, but we can't find a worthy person on this planet who's qualified to get that job done. That's the problem. It's the problem of human existence. This broken down world we live in, it drives us to tears. And we're reminded of on a daily basis that there is just so much that is so wrong. The weak get taken advantage of by the strong. The vulnerable get exploited. Precious children, we read about them, created in the image of God, get trafficked as sex slaves. God's people often end up on the receiving end of injustice and persecution. There's so many examples. Uh, There's a Christian missionary named uh, Graham Staines, and he dedicated 34 years of his life to serving lepers in the country of India. And on January 23rd, 1999, while he was sleeping in his van with two of his sons, aged seven and nine, a radical Hindu mob lit their car on fire and watched as the three of them burnt to death. That was way back in 1999. Um, And every day there are more stories of persecution, of injustice. And it hits closer to home for all of us. And we look at what's happening and we say, something has to be done. This has to stop. Someone's got to put a stop to everything that's wrong and set things right again, you know? We kind of feel it in our bones, don't we? You know, our soul's... They're hardwired for righteousness. They're hardwired to see justice done, to want to see justice done. And we we say, the story can't end this way. Every story 
needs a resolution, it needs a conclusion, and that applies to the story of this planet, of the history of humanity as well. And, 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 and just as an aside for me, this is one of the reasons, uh, this is one of the places where I just find the, the evolutionary theory to just come up short and be an inadequate explanation for what's going on in our world. Because if you think about it, there is no explanation for this longing that you and I feel to see wrongs made right. If our frame of reference for our entire existence is simply natural selection and the survival of the fittest, that ought to be nothing out of the ordinary when to see injustice is done. If evolutionary theory is, is an adequate explanation. But, um, but anyway, the solution in this passage, we see it, it's right there. It's sealed up in that scroll. But the problem is there's just no one who can grab hold of it. It says, no one was found in heaven or on earth or under the earth who was worthy of opening up that scroll or looking into it. It says it's just a, this is just a task that is too big for humanity. None of us are strong enough. None of us are wise enough to set things right and to do what needs to be done. And so that's what John's weeping about. Now, the expectation in John's day that there was this, this grand Roman Empire that he was living within, and the sights of those around him were that the empire was going to make it happen. The Roman Pax Romana, maybe you remember that from social studies class, this unprecedented peace that revolved around this champion, the Roman emperor, who they, they deified. And so this is, this is the man, this is the champion, this is, this is our God, and he's going to make it all happen. And it didn't work out too well. You know, we, we have a couple thousand years now to look back on it. But here we are 2,000 years later. And you know what? By and large, we're doing the same thing. We are setting our hopes on all kinds of different leaders. Maybe they're political leaders. Uh, maybe they're technological innovators or scientists or educators. And whoever it is, we're like, they are the ones who are going to make things right. But the reality is that this planet we're living on is still broken. It's still broken. The problem has not been fixed if you ask me, it's gotten a lot worse, right? There's, there's, there's sobbing that continues. And there's, there's been more bloodshed and more war in this past century than there has been in any other century. If the statistics that I've read are correct, that's, that's kind of disconcerting. So this is the scene. It's a very sad scene. But at the end of it, if you notice, it gets invaded by this message of hope. Listen. Listen to what this heavenly announcement is. Someone breaks into this and says, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, and he can open the scroll and its seven seals. There is one who's worthy. There is a hero in heaven who's qualified, who's competent, who's capable of doing what so desperately needs to get done down here on earth. And the passage goes on and it paints a portrait of, of heaven's hero who we know and understand is the incomparable Christ. So let me just read that and we'll read uh, from verses 6 to 10. It says this, 
And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And so you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. So this is a very artistic, very creative profile or portrait of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we're going to have to weed through it a little bit to make sense of this picture. Heaven's hero and the world's only hope. The passage tells us why he and he alone is the only worthy one, the only qualified one to unlock the seals and to take charge over all of creation and lead human history to God's intended conclusion. First of all, what he says is because of who he is. He says that this is a position that that Jesus was destined to take on because he's introduced with the title. He says, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And, And that title takes us all the way back to the book of Genesis, way back in the Old Testament. You know, we're going from Revelation, the last book, right to the first book, and uh, there was this ancient prophecy that Jacob made when he was on his deathbed, and he's got his 12 sons around him, and he made this prophecy, this promise that through the prodigy of his son Judah would come one who was destined to rule over the nations, all right? And, and so when you flip to the very first page of the New Testament, Matthew chapter one, do you know what the first thing is that you find? You find a family tree, all right? You see this genealogy, and it connects the dots from Jesus' birth and traces his bloodline through his mother Mary all the way back to who? To Judah. To Judah. Listen, don't make the mistake of thinking that Revelation, when you open the book of Revelation, that you've entered into the the stuff of pipe dreams and fairy tales and comic book kind of material. That is not the case. This this is for real. This is for real. This is divine destiny playing out, taking shape throughout the course of human history. And he also applies the second title, that heaven's hero is the root of David. Now, Now, David had the reputation of being Israel's ultimate king. It was the high water mark of of Israel, and and, and he had the strength, and he had the power. And what this is telling us is that this hero of heaven, he's the root of David, that he's the very source of where David's strength and his authority and his leadership all came from. But then it also highlights not only who he is, but what he's done. Some particular, one particular accomplishment that this hero has won, that Jesus has done 
what no one else throughout the course of human history has ever done or ever will do. And that's the reason why he alone is the only one who's worthy of doing what needs to be done. It says he's conquered. The, the, the Greek word is nikeo, and, and you might be familiar with the, the word Nike, right? The shoe company, the sneaker company. It means victory. And there's a victory that this hero in heaven won. And what we find out is that this victory was won through his death. And so here's the point where things start to get a little bit weird. Or, well, we're in, we're in Revelation, so the whole thing's weird, right? But, um, but based on the introduction we've heard, right, the lion of Druba, Judah, the, the root of David, what's the expectation? The expectation is that we are going to see, come center stage, some kind of mighty, triumphant, conquering king onto the scene, right? But when John looks... That's not, who he That's not who he sees. He doesn't see the mighty lion. Instead, he sees the slain lamb. Literally, the slaughtered lamb. The bloody, beaten, broken down lamb. The one who is worthy to take the scroll. To rule the world is the same one who's laid down his life in our place as the sacrificial lamb of God. And the point being that that is precisely what qualifies him. That is precisely what makes him worthy. You know, there's a lot of sacrificial lambs we see throughout Scripture. They all point to Jesus, the ultimate lamb of God. Like, remember, on the eve of the Exodus, when the Israelites were slaves in Egypt... They were told by God, sacrifice a spotless lamb, sprinkle its blood on the doorposts, and the judgment of God, they were told, would pass over. This is what the Passover holiday is all about. And the next morning, they walked out of Egypt free and victorious. Why? Because a lamb had been slain in their place. And in temple worship, no one... No Jewish person would ever enter the temple empty-handed. You went to the temple, you would carry with you a spotless lamb, a sin offering. And that lamb would be placed there on the altar and the priest would take a knife and he would slaughter that lamb as an atoning sacrifice. The idea being that the lamb was slain and the worshiper could go free. All of that foreshadowed, pointed to Jesus, the true Lamb of God, who went to the cross, who died in our place. He sacrificed and gave his life for the sin of the world. He bore the punishment that we deserved. And his death is what won our victory. The courts of heaven, they sing out this new song as the hero of heaven grabs hold of the scrolls, and what are they talking about? They're talking about the sacrifice. They're singing about the sacrifice he made. They say, you are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals. Why? Because you were slain. Because by your shed blood, you ransomed people for God. 
See, Jesus, pay, Jesus' death paid it all. It paid the price in full for humanity to be restored and made right with God. No one else has ever done that. No one else could ever do anything like what Jesus has done. And so let me try to put it in perspective. Let me try to be, you know, not the exaggerating preacher this morning. I want to be accurate. I want to be clear um, and, and, and communicate clearly the point this passage is making. Here's what it is. That death that Jesus died on the cross is nothing less than the most heroic accomplishment, the most defining moment throughout the entire course of human history. That's not an exaggeration, and I do understand full well that they may sound, that may sound absolutely outrageous, audacious. You may or you may not agree with that statement, but make no mistake, that's precisely the point this passage is making. I'm not going to try to convince you of it. According to this passage and what I read here, it will be crystal clear on a coming day. But here's the thing. Each of us has to decide what to do and how we're going to respond. See, the halls of heaven are echoing with the sound of this new song. They sing about how Jesus' blood paid that ransom price. His sacrifice won our salvation and everything that needed to be done to make us right with God. It got done by Jesus on the cross. And what he did, it doesn't just apply to certain people, a special breed of people in certain areas, you know, the good guys or whoever it is, my team, makes the point that this is global. This is worldwide. It applies to people from every tribe, every language, every people, and every nation. His death turns rebels into royalty. It welcomes us into this brand new kingdom community, one where he is exalted as Lord and King, and it magnifies him as the one of ultimate worth. And so here's Here's the question. Have you made the hero of heaven the champion of your own life? No one has done more for you than the Lamb of God who was slaughtered for you. He gave his all for you. And one of the things I love is that the marks of his sacrifice remain. They're there to remind us of everything he's done. He's not ashamed of the price he paid Right? Remember, after he was resurrected, the scars were still there. And he went to Thomas and he said, go ahead, put your, put your hand in the holes in my, in, put your fingers in the holes in my hand where the nails were. Later on, in Revelation 19, there's this other amazing portrait of the exalted, glorified Jesus Christ as he comes to take the throne and comes to reign and the description is incredible. I hope we get there. Um, but here's the thing. He's still wearing a robe dipped in blood. He's still reminding us always, this is what I did for you. I shed my blood willingly for you. No one forced me to do it. I did, I did it to make you my own. Let's, let's finish the passage. And we're going to read the response 
to what's happened in heaven. It sets into motion. Um, once Jesus grabs hold of this scroll, worship starts flowing. Worship ignites. And, and some of these words of worship, I'm gonna, I want to just uh, tell you in advance here, they may sound familiar to you back from last week's passage and this week's passage as well because many of the songs that we sing week to week, many of the worship songs we sing, they're lifted right from these two chapters, Revelation chapter 4 and 5. Uh, so here's, here's what it says. <clears throat> it says, Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them, saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. So this chapter ends in a familiar way. Um, if you remember and you were around last week, um, it sounds a lot like how chapter four ended, right? Worship and adoration and declaration has been ignited once again. But there's a few ways this is different. There's a few critical differences that stand out. One of them is this. Last week in chapter 4, it was God Almighty, the one who was seated on the throne. He was the sole object of worship. The spotlight was on him alone and his matchless worth, and he was seen for who he is. Now in chapter 5, that same applause, that same fair fanfare is being directed not only to the one who sits on the throne, but to the lamb as well. Jesus is right there, right at the center of it all. He is at the right hand of the Father, and together they are receiving the same glory, the same honor. And that matters for this reason. When we start to ask the question, when we try to answer the question, who is Jesus? It gets answered a lot of different ways. You know, the very first of the Ten Commandments, the Lord says, you will have no other gods before me. You worship me alone, right? And what do we see here? We see undiluted worship being directed to both the Father and the Son. So if there's any question about whether the Bible, does the Bible teach that Jesus is fully God? Just open it up to Revelation chapter 5. It's crystal clear. There's nothing less about the Lamb of God. Jesus is undiminished deity. Every praise given to the Father belongs to the Son as well. And even though it's not in this passage directly, we can affirm the same thing about the Holy Spirit as well. Right? This is the, the, the concept of the Trinity. Second thing is this, we also see in chapter 5 how the circle of worship just grows and it expands and it gets larger and larger until the lid comes off completely. So in chapter 4, it was kind of this exclusive event, 
right? It was only limited to the 24 elders in heaven, the four living creatures, those who were closest to the throne work. They, they, they're the ones who, who took part in the praise. But now it's growing. It's expanding. At first, first, it's opened up to the myriads of angels. They get in on the praise. The number, John says, it's just it's way too big to count. And they've joined in on this worship. And they're all shouting together out loud, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Can you just imagine what that must sound like? That kind of worship, that declaration, those words of worship from those many voices, all of heaven is giving all the glory, all the applause to where it belongs. They are making it about him, not about them. And once again, uh, that's just the model for us, right? This is what worship is all about. But then the last scene, you see the lid comes off altogether. John hears the voices, this time he says, of all creation, giving glory, declaring the matchless worth of the creator and the redeemer. He says this, I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them, saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and might forever and ever. All right, so what I want, I want to ask you guys, can we try something? Can we do a little bit of participation this morning? Um, would you guys mind just standing up? Let's stand up and we just go to the next slide and let's try that. Let's do a little preview, right? Let's say this together. Ready? To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Thank you. Well done. Take a seat. That is what you call a rehearsal, right? That's a rehearsal. And the reality is that this, in this prophetic vision that John sees, he, he heard the voice of you. He heard your voice in it. He heard my voice in it. He heard us declaring these words of worship and saying what's true. See, we're all going to be a part of this circle of worship. And so is everyone everywhere at all times, all throughout human history. See, no, one, no one's going to get the option of sitting this one out. So think about who's going to be there. Hitler's going to be there. The day is coming when Hitler is going to be there. Like it or not, he is going to assume the position, bow the knee, and confess together along with all of creation that Jesus Christ is Lord of all to the glory of God the Father. There's people I've talked to throughout the course of my life, they're filled with so much bitterness Here's the things of God. They said, if I ever meet Jesus, I'm going to spit right in his face. No, you're not. That's not how it's going to go down. You're going to meet him, and you will comprehend in that instant how wrong you have been, how tragically miscalculated you have lived your life at, and you will assume the position and bow the knee and confess together with all of creation, Jesus Christ is Lord of all to the glory of God the Father. You see, we just get the privilege 
of doing that today. We get the privilege of living out our lives with the recognition aligned around the reality of who he is and this ultimate reality of what will be clear ultimately to all of creation. And that is that it's all about him, that he is Lord of all, that he is coming to take charge. And right now we get the option of living our lives, surrender to him as a part of his kingdom, confessing him as Lord, living our lives under his authority and living in such a way that gives glory to the one who sits on the throne and to the lamb. They are worthy. Let's pray together.